Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 50. Very exciting. Big five zero. Yeah, you haven't introduced you yet. I'm sorry. And if you start talking, I will forget to introduce you, and then I'll get, we'll start getting crap from the, from uh, my friend Kyle. Okay, I'll take it back. So, but yes, thank you. That's Josh Long, my co-host. Hello, everyone. Big five zero. Indeed. Yes. All right. Uh, yeah, and it only took two and a half years to get here, <laughs> so, uh, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Um, wanted to uh, say some stuff real quick. Uh, first off, it's been several weeks now, but uh, and so many of you probably already know, uh, we actually did not win uh, a podcast award. Um, it's not the end of the world, certainly. Uh, and just wanted to say thanks to everybody for uh, supporting the show uh, in that. It's, it's very nice to have, because I would get some emails from people saying like, hey, I voted, and it's, <laughs> yeah, and so I should ha- we should make up little stickers next year if we're nominated again. <laughs> yeah, they'll just, they'll just say, I voted. Yeah. But it'll have like the more than one lesson. It'll be in that chalkboard kind of, right. kind of font. Right, instead of the American flag. On right. It, it'll just have like There's nothing American about this show. Except I do have a, a blue mic, uh, you know, uh, windscreen. And mine's red, and we're both white, so there's that. <laughs> Man, that last one is very, very true. <laughs> Truer than the, uh, than the other two. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's, so I do appreciate uh, everybody uh, supporting the show in that way. So, um, but then also I uh, want to say a special thanks to Dan Paris for being on the show last episode. Uh, even though it was, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, I would in, uh, encourage everybody to seek out uh, his film. They, they still do screenings uh, around the country, uh, so you can find out where those are on their Facebook page or on their website. Uh, I have posted the trailer to Give a Damn, uh, on more than one lesson, so you can find that it's uh, somewhere. I think it's actually I put it on the on the video section as well, so it'll be at the top there. And then, um, yeah, and so and the website is giveadamdoc.com dot com. So yeah, so thanks to Dan, uh, and so in the spirit of his appearance, um, I wasn't really sure what to do about this uh, this episode. I wanted it to be important because it's episode 50. And uh, there was actually... You've read the description, so you know that we're going to be talking about The Dark Knight. And what I wanted to say about it uh, was very important and, you know, potentially uh, controversial. And so I kind of been, had been putting it off. And uh, when Dan, actually in, in that interview, when he when he talked about the problem not of evil but the problem of good from a philosophical standpoint mm-hmm. and how we can try to reconcile ourselves with the idea of goodness, um, whereas so many people have a hard time reconciling themselves to the idea of evil, um, that immediately brought this episode 
or this topic into my head and it became very clear that uh, it's it it's what we should probably do for the next one and uh, and so uh, in in full disclosure I'll say that I was very reluctant to do it I have no doubt that uh, some people might be offended and if not offended some people will certainly disagree uh, with what we have to say and uh, and as we all know I don't deal with criticism well and I don't like <laughs> getting emails from people but, but what is the internet for if it's not for disagreeing yeah I've, I've picked so many I've made so many bad choices for someone who doesn't like conflict <laughs> and criticism um, not only did I enter the field of criticism but it was online um, but I will say at the top um, don't let my weird neurosis keep you from from writing in if you have a response positive or negative um but uh i'll just say whoa watch out easy rider going by um but i will say in the in, you know in the in the spirit of uh of civility let's let's all uh, try to be not necessarily positive because if you don't like the episode you don't like it but let's all try to be courteous to one another and that includes uh josh and myself mm-hmm. so all right the Dark Knight, feeling all right. Josh, what do you think about this movie? Well, it's uh, it's pretty good. <laughs> we done? Was that that was it? Right? Yeah. Just our thoughts on the Dark That's Knight. Pretty controversial. You know what? It's a weight off my chest having said that. <laughs> um. Okay, so you it, it appears that you enjoyed The Dark Knight, and that's really all you have to say about it. I, I did enjoy it, but you know what? There's lots more to say. Um, there sure is. The first time that I saw it, I I have a tendency to sometimes not take uh, some of the bigger summer blockbuster movies as seriously, because I think, in general, a lot of them don't have too much behind them. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times, they've just got a famous comic book and a lot of money behind them, and that's mm-hmm. all there is. Um and I think I could. I think there's a sense that there was something more going on in uh, Dark Knight, but uh, some of the issues that we're going to talk about today, I hadn't really thought about it in just seeing it. So mm-hmm. I think there may be other people who've seen the movie and get that there's uh, something interesting and something a little bit deeper than just the story and just the famous characters that we we know since we were kids, Batman and Joker and etc. But there's uh, there's some very interesting ideas being played back and forth there, which I think we're going to talk about today. Yeah, and uh, and it's a film. I, when I saw Batman Begins, I absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was really amazing. I was excited for it. I knew because Christopher Nolan at that time had done Following and Memento and Insomnia, and it seemed like he was kind of an inspired choice mm-hmm. to take over, or not even take over, but to re. I'm not going to say reboot. Reinvent. Reinvent. Thank you. I get tired of that word reboot because <laughs> it's said more than it should be. Um, I'm looking at you, Hollywood. But um, they, he reinvented the Batman franchise and made it uh, darker and uh, more realistic and grittier and you know seemed to be inspired more for, by Frank Miller and uh, Alan Moore's one-off uh, The Killing Joke. And... Uh, and so I was I was really excited about uh, Batman Begins, and it was one of my favorite movies of that year, and it is one of my favorite superhero movies of all time. Uh, I actually like Batman Begins more than The Dark Knight, which is kind of sacrilegious to say. But um, <laughs> but when they when when they announced the and of course Batman Begins ends so well with the hint of of 
the Joker coming in. Right, yeah. And you're just like, oh, <laughs> here we go. Who are they going to get to play Joker? And I will get to that in a moment. But um, but with Dark Knight, uh, I remember when I first saw it, I liked it a lot. And then, for, then I, the more I watched it, the less I liked it. Until I started thinking about it in terms of the themes that we'll be discussing today, mm-hmm. at which point it started. It's I started to like it again, and on a on a different level. Uh, and there's still some things I don't like. I still think that some of the dialogue is a little clunky. Um, I think there are certain things that, like for example, the introduction of uh, of Harvey Dent, in which he's questioning a guy on the stand. Um, uh, a, a mobster on the stand who's who's going to be giving testimony that puts away like the big bo- uh, mob boss, and uh, then the guy actually pulls a gun on Harvey, but uh, there's a misfire, and so Harvey grabs the gun and punches the guy, and then gives a little lecture to the mob boss, and then he's and then the judge is like, "Get him out of here!" and he goes, "But your honor, I'm not done," and everyone cheers. And it's supposed to be about the fact that this guy's pretty unflappable in the face of his own death. I mean, mm. he's a very brave person and he's someone that is that is in you know kind of inspiring gotham city and that's good but i feel like they overdid it with that scene how about this the gun doesn't go off and the bailiff punches the guy and then harvey says let's keep going Mm -hmm. that's still pretty brave yeah you don't have to have harvey actually punch the man you know he is just i'm sorry he is just a lawyer you know he's not a superhero in himself yeah so, scenes like that kind of bother me, and I bet they would play better in a comic book. Definitely, definitely. But it's, uh, but scenes like that are kind of, you know, they're kind of here and there. And, and I think maybe the, the only reason that scene bothers me is because the rest of the film and the world that Christopher Nolan creates in his Batman films are so realistic that whenever you have a moment that doesn't seem very realistic like that, you're like, Oh, that stands out. That stands out. And so I guess it's more of a testament to what he was able to do with the rest of the film. Yeah. As opposed to this being just a bad scene or anything like that. And that's, those are the main problems that I had with the film, uh, are a lot of them are with Harvey Dent because I think a lot of the things we see with his character are things that don't seem as real within that world. Right. One of them is the, the, the two face CGI. I think that effect to me at least was something that stood out a little bit as not as realistic mm-hmm. and not that Christopher Nolan can't use CGI in this franchise because he does in Batman Begins but it, it the way it's used in Batman Begins is in sort of a supernatural way surrounding the scarecrow and right. that's supposed to be sort of a supernatural thing um or at least the the drug induced you know there's there's a right. uh, uh, surrealistic thing that's supposed to be that we're supposed to be seeing so mm-hmm. um I don't think there's any point, unless, correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't think of a moment in Dark Knight where we're supposed to see something as uh, surrealistic or stylized or something. Uh, um, I don't think so, no. I feel like most of it's supposed to be pretty straight, straightforward. Yeah. And so I, I, I feel like the effects that they use on, on uh, with with Two-Face is, is one thing that I don't, I don't buy so much. And you know, it's, it's a weird thing. Like, it doesn't look, it doesn't look just terrible like no, having it rewatched look, it yeah but you know it's cgi exactly and i and we've you know i i know i've said it before on the, on the show and i think you've said it as well that it's like there's nothing wrong with cgi using it for just for practical purposes um and but if you're if, 
if people know that it's it's CGI, if they know it's not real, and people can sense it better more than you would think. Yeah, people are savvier and savvier as time goes by. Yeah, and so, and I really actually responded well to the idea behind the Two Face concept, where you watch the animated series, you look at look at him in the comics, you look at him in Joel Schumacher's film. They always really stylize how horrendous his face looks. Mm-hmm. What they do with this, it's just his skin has been burned off. And mm-hmm. that's horrific. Yeah. And that's all it is. His right. skin has been burned off. There's no hair left, you know, as opposed to his hair has turned purple or something like that. <laughs> and so I like the idea behind that. Yeah. Um, and that side of the face is only going to be so expressive. But I think maybe they went, I think what they went a little too far with it. And they had like his lips and cheek gone. They had his eyelid gone. And f- it looks good for what it is, but I feel like in in going, what is enti- it's entirely possible that if if he had sustained those kinds of burns, that's exactly what he would look like. But people don't often walk around and talk looking like that. You don't often see a lidless eye moving around, and you don't often see that much of a burned face, you know, talking. And so I feel like if they had sort of left the cheek and maybe even left the lid a little bit. I would have bought it more, mm-hmm. but I feel like they were actually too ambitious in the, in the makeup. <laughs> yeah. That may be um, or in the, in the effect, I guess. Um, but yeah, so I, but that's, that's kind of a, a, a picky point. Um, yeah. And I don't think that holds the movie back. I, ju- I feel like just the moments where, uh, where it shifts too much away from the reality that it's based in. Otherwise, those are the right. points when I tend to not enjoy the film as much. Right. And so it's, uh, so I don't want to spend uh, you know our time talking about what we didn't like because there is there is a lot there and in speaking about the Dark Knight I, I'm speaking about Nolan's choices in general and the one thing that I can applaud well there's several things I can applaud but the biggest thing that he has done for the Batman franchise is make Batman interesting hmm. I like Michael Keaton. I think he's a very good actor but nobody saw Batman Tim Burton's Batman for Michael Keaton. They saw it for Jack Nicholson and the Joker. Like they might in principle they might have, but the villains are are always so flamboyant and they're given just as much screen time if not a little bit more mm-hmm. and they really overshadow Batman who, you know, he's just dressed in a black suit and he's not saying anything particularly interesting. And they often have a lot more of a backstory than he does too. Right. You know, and and I enjoy Batman. I enjoy Batman Returns, but there's only so much. You know, you, in Batman Returns, you get like Danny DeVito in heavy makeup, and then a very slinky Michelle Pfeiffer. You're not caring that much about Batman anymore. <laughs> um, and so, and then of course with uh, Joel Schumacher, actually with Batman Forever, he does try to he does try to put a little bit more emphasis on Batman's background with the idea of, the, of finding his father's diary and stuff like that. And, or his his journal and that's fine so he made the effort but still like when you have Jim Carrey going over the top as the Riddler and uh, Tommy Lee Jones as Two-Face and you're just always introducing more characters like Robin now then Batman will always is always put on the back burner because he's sort of he's the constant and constants aren't th- are, th- are not that interesting yeah, yeah. and so what I like about Nolan is that in casting Christian Bale, but also in the amount of screen time they give Batman and just the conflict that they perpetually give him, I always care about him. And what's more, I want him to win. Yeah. 
You know, it is, it's exciting when he does well. The whole sequence when he goes to Hong Kong to, to get the guy who uh, laundered the money for the, the Gotham mob, that whole sequence is a lot of fun. And it's just, and it's just uh, Batman going up against, you know, kind of faceless bad guys, and that's all. But uh, but it's very exciting, and, and, and I care very deeply about what happens. And I care about his relationships. I care about his relationship with Alfred. Um, yeah. And I like what they did. I like what they do with Alfred. I love what they do with Commissioner Gordon. Like the emphasis on the good people of Gotham, mm-hmm. the protagonists of Gotham, is something that I really like in these films because it would have been so easy. I mean, look, Pat Hingle is a good actor, but really, do, do you remember anything that Commissioner Gordon did in? any of those four Batman movies yeah, the he's, Tim Burton or the Schumacher he's a very he's just a very marginal character in those movies yeah and anyone will tell you that one one theme that you will frequently find is that Batman is or Bruce Wayne specifically is always looking for father figures mm. and he's got one with Alfred and then he has one with Gordon and then in some cases he has one with like Lucius which is Morgan Freeman's character mm-hmm. but then he also has like alternative father figures in that <laughs> and he has I'm going back to Batman Begins like Ra's al Ghul no. and even uh, even Tom Wilkinson's mobster is about the same age as what his father would be and he gives him like some advice and that, stuff like that so there's a nice mirroring of here's good father figures here's bad father figures and so it was it was good for nolan to play up how important the the good father figures are and uh, even even morgan freeman's character who isn't given a whole lot of screen time but in this film the fact that lucius knows who bruce who batman is and he understands what he's trying to do like speaks volumes about how much they're putting into that character mm-hmm. um so aside from, so the, that's maybe the biggest contribution I think that he's made. Aside from creating a, a a very real Gotham City, having the good characters be people that we care about, um, is is I think the most uh, laudable thing that that he has done. Um, now let me ask you this: I've 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 gotten some criticism about this uh, on BP. Uh, they do. There is a voice change between Batman Begins and Dark Knight, where in Dark Knight, the voice is really, really growly, whereas mm. in Batman Begins, it's just deep and and you know a little uh, raspy, you know, and it doesn't sound like Bruce Wayne. Whereas in this one, it's just so stylized. It's like, well, he he just doesn't sound human at all now. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think of that? It doesn't bother me that much. I mean, in watching it, I didn't think... It didn't seem to me like he was doing a funny voice or something. The scenes where he does a lot of talking... Right. It comes out a little bit. Like, I think the interrogation scene is one of them. Yeah. And often, Batman... Like, you see Bruce Wayne do a lot of talking, maybe, but often there isn't a whole lot of talking for Batman to do. It's it's not necessary often. Right. Um, he, he speaks with actions rather than words. That's right. <laughs> um. But so, I, I mean, it may just be that once we see, when we see a character speaking in a, in a, what is essentially really a funny voice mm. for any length of time, it, it can get odd after a while. So I can see how it would be distracting for people. I don't, I don't think it ruins the movie for me. I don't think it ruins it, but it does, if, if Batman ever, like, 
if there's ever a villain that he talks to a lot, it's the Joker because right. the Joker is always so interested in what Batman has to say. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that interrogation scene and their and their uh, fight at the end. So yeah, the the heavy dialogue scenes between him and the Joker. You know, the Joker is. You can hear exactly what he's saying at all times. And so so with Batman kind of straining through that voice to to counter him, it sound it just inherently sounds like Joker has more of a point because <laughs> Batman is speaking in that voice in smaller sentences. You know? Um and that's it might just be that I'm biased because to me like the best Batman voice was in Batman the animated series which <laughs> it was definitely different than Bruce Wayne's voice it was definitely dark and brooding um but he was able to do a lot with it and so I don't know but that that might just be me so again I'm harping on the things that I don't necessarily <laughs> like um and uh and I know that one thing that people talk about a lot is the action in uh in these films uh what do you think of for uh, for example i just watched a a little video essay called uh, chaos cinema and uh, a lot of people have a have a problem with sort of the shaky cam and the and the the quick editing of the fights in batman um do you have uh, any problem with that or did you find it uh, exciting i think the action's great in it as a whole i i do remember that some of the uh some of the fist fight sequences, specifically hand to hand combat sequences, mm-hmm. I don't, I didn't like as much. And this is a thing in most movies nowadays: mm-hmm. is that in in an effort to, I think really in an effort to show a lot of movement and show a lot of action without having to shoot it that meticulously, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's maybe a little bit of a lazy man's routine in getting the camera in real close moving it around and you can cut it together to make it look like there's a fight going on but i prefer as a viewer to be able to see what's happening i kind of want to see like i I like wider shots so i can get a context i I Mm -hmm. like that's the kind of action that i enjoy more and so the scenes that i remember liking the most are some of the scenes where uh, like with the motorcycle or bat um, pod please bat pod whatever motor bat Batacycle. Motorpod. Podsicle. <laughs> Pod, podsicle. Um, so, yeah, I, I remember liking those sequences a lot. But I I did um, some of the, the uh, hand-to-hand combat sequences I didn't like so much. Yeah, the, the sequence with uh, what is essentially a car chase where the Joker is... Uh, and his and his men are following uh, an armored car that is carrying Harvey Dent. Um, that uh, that sequence was pretty pretty great. That's a great one, yeah. And it ends with such a such a it has such a nice climax, which is Batman, you know, uh, hooking onto the truck, and then the truck finally has no no more slack left in like the cord, and it just completely flips over. And I remember uh, in my theater when that happened, people just applauded. And, and I did not really go. And that theater was not one in which people applaud on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a nice moment. And and it was also. And this and we're going to talk more about the Joker in a moment, but it also 
speaks to what I'm talking about in that it's we're we're on board with Batman more than the villains because when the Joker comes out and he's like stumbling around we are laughing at him it's supposed to be funny like he comes out fires a gun a little bit and then just falls back down to the ground because he was just in a truck that flipped over (laughs) and so we are laughing at him so often we find ourselves just enthralled by him but in that moment yeah Batman got him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I remember liking that they were willing to have the Joker be the object of ridicule, being the villain as he is. It's it's almost like they took what is the standard uh, view of the Joker, like m- mm-hmm. maybe what we're used to in, in uh, Tim Burton's Batman. Right. And they almost brought in uh, the the antagonist from Dirty Harry. Remember that guy who, like, <laughs> yeah. you you hate that guy so much. Like, I so much want him to lose. Yeah. And, like, I can't believe he keeps getting away with the stuff that he that he gets away with. And so yeah. that there's an there's an element of that in the Joker in in, uh, in the Dark Knight and that you, you can't believe he keeps getting away with what he keeps getting away with. And you're just like, somebody's got to stop this guy. Yeah. And in that moment, you stopped him. And it was <laughs> exactly. pretty great. Um, and so... Uh, now you you talked about uh, about Dent and uh, and I feel like you know the Joker stays the same like he doesn't change mm-hmm. he's very much a supporting character um, and Bruce himself his resolve strengthens and he has moments of doubt but he really doesn't change that much either hmm. probably the most powerful arc in the film is Harvey Dent's yes he goes through the most dynamic change yeah and so. So I feel like it's 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 interesting because that's a lot of the heavy lifting is on Aaron Eckhart and I think he does a a pretty good job for the most part. I mean he it's it's tough for me because I still think of him as characters that are incredibly cynical. Mm-hmm. Like in, you know, Thank uh, you for smoking. Thank you for smoking and in the company of men <laughs> where just just kind of shady characters and so when you see him playing a lawyer who's admittedly pretty cocky um, or a prosecutor that's pretty cocky, you think like, uh, is he corrupt? And then when they keep saying that he isn't, I'm just like, uh, I guess I believe you. You know, it, it actually, for reasons that are purely of my, you know, purely my own, uh, I had a hard time buying him as a purely, uh, you know, righteous guy. And then after a while, you're just like, okay, well, I guess, I guess this is who he is, and he's he wants to be brave, and he's he's willing to to take the the chances. And then when things go bad for him, and uh, you know his his girlfriend that he loves uh, dies, and when, and his face is scarred and all that, um, it's it's a very. I think we see some new things from Aaron Eckhart in that moment as an actor. Like, I don't think I had seen that sort of thing, just that kind of rage and, and the scene at the end of the film where he is holding Gordon's family hostage. I think you see some, I think, I feel like that scene is very, very powerful. There's some really great music happening and some, just some good writing in which he's talking about, it's it's written it's written very well and it's acted very well in which he's talking about what it's like to assure the person that you love most that everything's going to be all right when you know it isn't mm. and that's a very powerful idea yeah um and specifically that the last thing you're doing is lying to this person 
And so that in itself, one could say is bad, but what are you going to do? Say, well, I guess you're kind of screwed. You know, like you can't <laughs> say that. And Sorry, so family. And so it's a, not, it's a very powerful moment between Gordon and Dent and then Batman shows up and just the three of them together. Uh, it's just, it makes for a really powerful ending to the film. Uh, a lot of people um, I've heard uh, kind of feel like that scene just, it's not that it comes out of nowhere, but it feels like the natural climax is with the Joker. Um, and then there's a whole other, you know, another 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to me, it's like, mm, I could see why you would think that because the Joker is, he's a charismatic character and he's kind of the primary villain. But if you want to address the arc of the film, then that means you have to address what's going on with Harvey. And, uh, and so I do, I like that scene and I like, and I guess we'll we'll use this to kind of transition into talking about the Joker. I really like the scene between Harvey and the Joker, in which the Joker puts a, is, is trying to convince him that certain ideas like rules and order and you know people having big plans that ultimately it doesn't mean anything, and then he he gives Harvey a gun, knowing full well I I could die. This man could kill me, and then. There's such a wonderful moment when Harvey, now basically Two-Face, embraces what we know about Two-Face. And he takes the, co- the coin and he said, the good heads you live, bad heads you die. And just the you see how enthralled Joker is. Like, this guy's getting into it way more than I thought he would. <laughs> and so when he says, like, oh, now we're talking. And just, it's such a, it's such a great moment. Um and so, so yeah, I guess that leads us into uh, the Joker, which is really, well, I do, well, I feel like the filmmaker cares about Batman, cares about Harvey and Gordon and all these characters. The one that we come away thinking the most about. The is, most affecting, probably. Is the Joker. For any number of reasons, not the least of which is that Heath Ledger... It was the last role that he, well, last role he completed before he died. He was right. in Dr. Parnassus. Um, but, uh, yeah, and so, like, so I feel like people just naturally put a lot into that character, and they see, like, wow, it, it becomes, like, almost almost like he martyred himself for this performance. And I don't mean to, and, and I don't think he did that, by the way, but I don't mean to... to to crap on him at all um and he he did win best supporting actor posthumously for this performance and uh and so first i'd like to ask what you think of his performance as as the joker i i think it's a i think it's a great performance i think well a strength of a a performance you can tell how strong it is oftentimes because you forget about the actor. I feel like mm-hmm. that's a good sign. That's one of the things I said about Justin Timberlake in uh, in Social Network because, especially with Justin Timberlake, because he has that all to uh, overcome the fact that we know him as a Mouseketeer and as Justin Timberlake, the singer. But to be able to then watch this character and forget about all that other stuff. And I think this happens with Heath Ledger, especially because he's played so many romantic leads before. Mm-hmm. Like that's, it's almost like he had been, uh, uh, he might've been pigeonholed by that sort of thing. And 
in this we we totally forget i at least as a viewer totally forget all those other things i i totally forget 10 things i hate about you (laughs) i i totally even forget brokeback mountain like that's more recent but it, it seems like a different actor almost yeah he was an actor that i thought was good not necessarily great and then i saw i think in I think in in 2005 you had Brokeback Mountain, and suddenly it's just like, what, what, what? Hmm. Who who just showed up? This is very strange. And then he was in a movie, he was in Casanova, which is not a great movie, but he's very good in it and very playful, and you can see that, I don't know, there's something more to him. He seems to really be, uh, either he's being asked to do more and living up to it, or or he's just demanding more of himself. Yeah. and yeah, and so with with the Dark Knight, I have a I keep going back and forth on that performance. I will not say it's a bad performance by any stretch, but you know it's it's a fun performance to watch. You're given not merely because of the way he's written. You know, he's just a fun character to watch. Um, but just he plays him as I don't know as the Joker, not necessarily as he should be played, but as that Joker probably should be played. Um, he still has plenty of very playful, goofy moments, like with the disappearing pencil trick, and just the way he plays that up as if it were merely a magic trick, and he didn't just murder a man. Um, and so I enjoy that aspect of it, but I I have a hard time with it. I know it sounds strange, but the voice that he's doing is not necessarily a voice you'd hear in everyday life. Hmm. And maybe it goes, maybe it goes back to what we were talking about with the two face effect is that it seems all the more, I don't know. It seems all the more stagey because they've created a a realistic world. Um, and so to have this guy who not, he doesn't merely put makeup on and dye his hair. I'm willing to go with them for that because we are dealing with a guy who dresses up like a bat Mm. and so i'm willing to go with them but like the fact that his voice is like that the fact that he kind of does this weird tongue thing where he kind of licks his lips and it 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 goes it goes back to a phrase that battleship pretension listeners will be very familiar with uh at times i feel like i see the strings i see that the actor is saying i need to be really threatening i'm gonna lick my lips now like it just Mm. it seems like a surprisingly intellectualized performance instead of merely an instinctive performance. I, I feel like I excuse that because it's so over the top and I feel mm-hmm. like because the character is so over right. the top. And so I feel like those things, while they might seem histrionic, maybe I think it's because the character is, mm-hmm. and uh, you could argue, and I think it's possible that, uh, that he is just playing it big because he, because he's, acting his brains out mm-hmm. um but if that is the case i think the the film excuses it by wanting the character to kind of be like that anyway right and so so part of me like i just i feel like i'm watching a performance and and uh i was talking with a friend of the show jason eakin and and kind of the conclusion that we came to is well we are watching a performance but we're not merely watching heath ledger's performance i mean the Joker is a guy who does put on makeup. Like, he's not merely a criminal. Yeah. He's something more. Mm-hmm. And he frequently gives lectures about the way things should be and that sort of thing. So, yeah. really, we're watching the Joker himself give a performance. I mean, he frequently lies about his past. And why would he bring up these stories, you know, unless he wanted to elicit a reaction from somebody? Right. And so, uh, it's 
so that's kind of how I reconcile myself to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's very different. A lot of people because you know once they saw this performance, they wound up crapping on Jack Nicholson. It's like, well, they're both good. Yeah, Jack Nicholson. I actually think from a from an instinctive standpoint, I think. As as over the top as that performance is, it really does seem to come from a place within Jack Nicholson. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. Like I believe that he all he did is like okay, me without any inhibitions, and that's really saying something for Jack Nicholson. <laughs> um, what would that look like? And so I think he took stuff away, took took away barriers in himself, and just let let go. Whereas I think Heath Ledger layered things on himself, hmm. and neither one is necessarily wrong. Um, But I think that just the kind of acting that I prefer, I prefer stuff that's maybe a little more instinctive. Hmm. Um, But again, still a lot of fun to watch. Definitely. Um, So I I would not say it's a bad performance uh, at all. Um, Now, now we're going to start getting into kind of the the themes because uh, the way the Joker is written, he is a deeply uh, philosophical character um, he will, you know, he'll talk to Gordon. He'll talk to Batman. He talks to Dent. He talks to fellow criminals about what he thinks the world is and mm-hmm. how he thinks people are. Yeah. Um, and it's out of him that the central conflict, uh, of the film, uh, emerges. Um, he is the primary antagonist and, you know, people always say like, "Well, Batman and the Joker are yin and are, are yin and yang. They're like two sides of the same coin." And people have been saying that for a long time. And I remember always being like, "Why? Clowns are not the natural enemy of bats. <laughs> Is that what you're talking about?" And is but that's when I was younger. As I've gotten older, I realized, well, it's it's literally the difference between order and chaos. Mm-hmm. And Batman tries to embrace order. He is the symbol of law and order and justice. Mm-hmm. Whereas Joker is all about. Let's hey, let's just see what happens. Well, I know what's going to happen when I shoot this guy, but why shouldn't I shoot this guy and that sort of thing? So, um, so they are a philosophical yin and yang, and and they represent different things. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so yeah, I wanted to. We're going to use the Joker to sort of get into the the theme here, and I'm even rel- I'm. This is where we get into, as I said, this episode might be a little controversial, and so I'm I'm not even really sure how best to get into what we're going to be discussing. But what I will say is that people have, have heard what the Joker says in this film, and it's interesting how often you'll hear someone say, you know, the Joker actually makes a lot of sense. You know, he doesn't sound that crazy all the time. Some of what he says... Makes sense to me. And and it's interesting that that resonates with people because in a way, he really is making a lot of sense. He, he clearly believes certain things and acts upon them. He believes certain things about humanity, but he doesn't just leave it at a mere belief. His entire existence is about acting out his beliefs. Mm-hmm. You know, he's kind of an idealist in that sense. It's amazing how much of the movie he's really trying to make a point, mm-hmm. which is unusual for a, a comic book villain, I think. Yeah. I believe in it, during a, one part of the film, he says it's not about the money, it's about sending a message. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and the, it's a clearly a common thread throughout the film that they're saying this guy isn't after anything. Like, he's not trying to 
uh, he's not trying to gain anything. He's not trying to get any kind of revenge. Like mm-hmm. he, uh, I think Alfred says, like some people just want to watch the world burn. Yeah, and in the first scene when there's a very well planned uh, and you know well executed um, bank heist, and the Joker is a part of it, um, he uh, <laughs> the bank manager says, you know, criminals used to believe in things. You know, what do you, what do you believe in? You know, and, and that's the thing is he doesn't really care about, he doesn't care about money. He, there's a huge stack of money in the film that belongs to all of the, all of the, all of Gotham's criminals. And he just burns it because it's not about that. You know, he, and he actually puts a lot of that on Batman and says, you've changed things because because Batman has disrupted the natural order because it used to be criminals would do stuff so they can make a lot of money without having to do a lot of real work. Cops get paid in or probably because they believe that they can do something. They can make a difference, but it is still their job with Batman. He enters the fray. He's not on any payrolls and the city knows it. Hmm. He is the embodiment of law and order. He stands to only lose, yeah, never he has, gain. Yeah, he has nothing to gain, is what I was about to say. And in that sense, it's almost like the Joker saw, oh, if you're going to be the symbol of good and selflessness, then I think I think we need a symbol of evil. <laughs> I think it's me. And that's where the yin and yang thing comes on, into play again, because Batman mm-hmm. is a character with nothing to gain, and uh, through the actions that he pursues in the film, and joker is a character who has nothing to lose yeah uh by pursuing the actions in the film really he i think joker shows several times he said there's several times in the movie where he's on the verge of being killed mm-hmm. and seems to not care i think maybe genuinely does not care yeah there's a scene where he's falling off a building and is basically laughing all the way yeah. down and seems deeply disappointed that he is not allowed to die yeah um which is kind of disturbing <laughs> um but uh and then um elsewhere uh batman is trying to you know, beat him up to get information out of him. And he's laughing the whole time. Of course, he's still feeling the pain. There's no question. And, and he's saying, there's nothing that you can threaten me with. He literally, like you said, he, he knows he has nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, he is kind of nihilistic in the way that he approaches life. Yeah. Um, and that's where, that's kind of where we, we come to what we're going to be discussing. Uh, like you said, he always has a point to make, and his big point seems to be questioning the rules. There's a line here. I, I've, I have a lot of his quotes written down. Uh, he's talking about them, which means, you know, civilized people and government officials and all that. And he says, their morals, their, their, morals, their code, it's a bad joke, dropped at the first sign of trouble. And... He just seems to really have not disdain for rules themselves, but the instinct to make rules because mm-hmm. he seems to want to know where that comes from. And he wants other people to ask, where does that come from? He says, you have all these rules and you think they'll save you. The only sensible way to live is without rules. And another another thing that plays throughout the film, but he frequently speaks in terms of is uh, dogs. And, I mean, there are actual dogs in the film that uh, that attack Batman and and uh, 
Joker keeps those around him uh, towards the end of the film. But then he also talks about uh, himself. You mentioned this, that uh, he compares himself to a dog who's chasing a car and wouldn't know what to do with it if he caught it. Um, And so he it really does kind of speak to that idea of like a dog eat dog world Mm -hmm. Um, that everyone's just sort of out for themselves uh, out for what they want and and morality is almost kind of obscuring that fact Mm -hmm. and if people were to just realize that uh, once people realize that survival is more important or more essential than morality, then everyone will actually be more like him. That's what he, he, he always puts people in a position of having to choose between what they think they should be doing, you know, which is embracing morality and what they really want, mm-hmm. which is to survive, but also to prosper themselves as individuals. Um, you know, and he says that if you if you put people in a certain kind of situation, they'll eat each other, and that goes back to that the the dog eat dog thing. Um, and he and he is deeply convinced, and this actually goes back to a lot of what uh, Alan Moore, who wrote Watchmen and V for Vendetta, he's a very intelligent, sensitive uh, writer, philosophical writer as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote a, a one off called The Killing Joke in which the Joker's constantly trying to prove that in the right circumstances, anyone will be me. Hmm. Now, in that instance, if anyone hasn't read it, have you read it? I have not. It's really wonderful. Uh, in that instance, he's trying to show that in the right circumstances, anyone will go insane. And, of course, he targets the sanest person in Gotham, Commissioner Gordon, as he so frequently does. Um, whereas with this, he just... Money doesn't mean anything to him. No one really knows what drives him. He just wants to see the world burn. And his whole thing is, everyone's just like me. They just won't admit it. And so there's a point where he says, I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. Implication being, give it enough time and people will come around exactly. to, what I, to what I believe. So, and, this, and actually, uh, another thing that has always been in... Uh, Batman films and comics is the idea of Gotham as just a very corrupt place. Yeah. Um, even with city officials and cops, you get people that are that are very corrupt. They're on. They're totally on the take, and you never know if the person, if this cop, is actually working for you, or if they're working for the mob. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's the big. Uh, frustration of commissioner gordon in the film he's lieutenant gordon and is made commissioner over the course of the film um you know because a police officer there you know they have a uh, this idea of duty mm-hmm. not merely to citizens but certainly but to each other as well but so often the the police officers of gotham they keep selling everyone out <laughs> for their own gain you know you see mark boone jr in uh who's a uh, Gordon's partner in Batman Begins you see him and just he just he's the image of corruption he's like (laughs) he just doesn't care how he looks he just he just he goes to uh, like drug deals as muscle like it's not even merely that he tries it's like I'll keep the cops off you he shows up there just to make sure everything goes okay (laughs) you know like he's and and you'll find that and you find that in, in a lot of a lot of the cops in uh in the dark night as well. And I think the, 
it's sort of in that seeing how that world is the world of Gotham City is another similarity or, or at least a philosophical similarity between Batman and the Joker is that they both see the capability for evil in all people. Mm-hmm. Um, or I guess the Joker would say whatever society's idea of evil is. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, the the capability of people to go off the rails in a, in a way. Right. And in in keeping with that um it's it's this struggle of wanting of like wanting to do the right thing but also wanting to do what you want to do and seeing how often people choose to look after themselves Mm -hmm. it's it's ultimately that that drives harvey dent insane yeah um because you know bad things happen he was ready for that Mm mm-hmm but he loses a lot and he feels like and it helps you know and joker kind of helps this idea along that he wouldn't have lost anything if gordon hadn't made compromises in or and of course gordon was trying to do the right thing but he was making as as uh, dent says he made a deal with the devil which is he was perfectly willing to deal with corrupt cops as long as it meant you know, going after the mob. And it's like, and he says, and Dennis is like, no, you need to root these out first and then we can go after the mob. And so it, it's, it's notable that when it comes time to avenge, uh, you know, the, his, his girlfriend's death and his horrible scarring. Sure. He does go after, after mobsters, but he also goes after, the corrupt cops and eventually goes after Gordon. Gordon himself. Yeah. Because in a way it's like the Joker's just doing what he, what he does. He's just a function of pure instinct. He can't really help himself. Mm. The mobsters as well. Like they need to be punished because the, they just have chosen a life of evil, but really they're doing what's best for them and they're doing what they've always done. But the idea of cops who ostensibly are supposed to stand for the right thing and then sell out and the fact that gordon is comfortable with that that enables evil way more than evil itself mm-hmm. and so that's why he targets gordon and eventually he winds up saying that the only thing that really makes any sense is chance you know that's why he clings to that coin mm-hmm. because it's just a 50 50 chance maybe i'll kill you maybe i won't i know what i want to do but it's not about what i want to do i know what i should do it's not about what should happen We'll just see what happens. And he flips his coin and, and there you go. So some some people wind up living, some people wind up dying. Um, and he says it's the only thing that's really fair. And so that's, and that's another... So he's really embracing a certain kind of chaos and anarchy that the Joker is. Uh, his is a bit more structured in that everyone gets a 50-50 chance. Whereas Joker, it's like, well, whatever, everyone dies. It's fine. <laughs> um, and so... So I'm sure some people, I mean, we're talking about, you know, some philosophies here, and I'm sure some people are wondering, well, where are we headed with this? And and this is where, as I said, we might start angering people. Joker actually does make a lot of sense. Because really, our rules, now he's talking about laws, but... It's very easy, and he's probably talking about morality in general. Just mm-hmm. the rules that we live by. The idea that, frankly, even just the idea of the word should, the mm-hmm. way we should act. 
what is it really based on? Hmm. And we often don't question it. We just know that we shouldn't kill people. Hmm. We shouldn't steal. Right. We shouldn't lie. We have an idea of we have an idea of good and evil, but many and many people don't ever question where that comes from. Right. And Joker has. Right. And he started and so he started asking why and the further he went, the more crazy you can say he went. Although he would be quick to say, no, I'm the sanest person here mm-hmm. because I recognize that the only reason any there are any rules at all is because we all agreed to play by the rules. And if if in looking at that character, you might see him and, and think, well, that's an extreme example. Uh, there are just as extreme examples in real life. The most m- perhaps the most obvious of which is something that Tyler and I've been talking a little bit is that. Uh, Joker's mentality is very close to, if not fully based on, the ideas of Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I think I read somewhere that Christopher Nolan purposefully that Christopher Nolan had that in mind in making the movie, and that uh, uh, in the the bank robbery scene, Joker says the line. Uh, I I believe that what doesn't kill me makes me stranger. He mm-hmm. says, which is a paraphrase of that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger, which mm-hmm. is a, uh, is a, that originally comes from Nietzsche. I, th- I, I believe didn't that's know from, that. That's from Twilight of the Idols. I had to look up which one it was, but, mm. uh, but yeah, so I think that's pointed in the first scene to show us like, this is a, this is a philosophical idea to which this, uh, this character subscribes. And so the, the, the question that we can get from him and the question that we can get from the film and from the Joker specifically, you know, it's, it is definitely much more than a blockbuster, a summer blockbuster. It's more than a comic book movie. Not to not to crap on comic book movies, as you know from my Hellboy episode, my Iron Man episode. I I I've, there's nothing wrong with comics. I like them a lot when they are done well, and I feel like Hellboy and Iron Man and Dark Knight are just movies that are done well. They stand their ground just as movies. So mm-hmm. when I say it's not just that, I don't mean to to denigrate the, that genre, but so few are willing to go beyond that or to to really see what the potential can be um and in a way there's a slight side note putting this stuff in the mouth of someone like the joker a character that we're all you know american society is pretty familiar with Mm -hmm. um and putting that putting it all in the middle of a genre film it's really no different than what we were talking about about you know a month ago when we were talking about horror movies yeah you can you can Working within a, a, a definite genre like comic book movies or horror movies, it gives you the freedom to explore certain ideas, and people don't even totally realize it. Or, more specifically, they don't expect it, and then when it shows up, they're like, oh, what, what is this? Mm-hmm. And so, a lot of people said, like, man, I've never seen... I, I heard people say, I've never seen a villain like the Joker before. Now, here's what I'll say, not to crap on those people, but... There was a villain just like it, like, just like the Joker, a year before in No Country for Old Men, mm-hmm. in Anton Chigurh, a guy who literally says, if you followed a rule your whole life, and that rule brought you to this point, and he's saying it to a man that he's pointing a gun at and is about to kill, mm-hmm. what good was the rule? Mm-hmm. You know, and so, like, his whole idea being that, like, rules are only good insofar as they help you to survive. Right. And so... 
But No Country for Old Men, it is kind of a genre film of sorts, but it's also sort of an, an indie film. Yeah, and it's, you sort it's of not, expect that from an indie film. Yeah, it's it's not the same. It's not going to get the same sort of audiences because it doesn't have the same uh, spectacular draw, I suppose. Right. And so I so that's I guess that's another thing that I can applaud Christopher Nolan for is seeing the potential. Yeah. Uh, of of this genre and seeing what he can do with it, and that's why I'm very excited about Dark Knight Rises. I'm I'm excited about the, uh, the character of Bane. Yeah. Um, I'm excited about the character of Catwoman, but we'll see. That one I'm trepidatious about, mm. um, partially because uh, people have pointed out Christopher Nolan's not that great at writing women. Um, I'd say that's kind of true. Hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but I can't. I'm trying to think of a strong Christopher Nolan female character. I mean, Marion Cotillard in Inception is a very strong presence, but she is the she's the embodiment of guilt. Yeah, she's, she's not an, an actual idea person. More than a character, right? Carrie Ann Moss is pretty good in, in Memento. Not not the character is pretty interesting, mm-hmm. um, but she also changes from time to time. She's not a wholly positive character. Yeah. Um, so, but I, but I'm interested to see what he'll do with with Catwoman. But yeah. I'm very excited mm-hmm. to see Dark Knight Rise and see what comes of that because I'm sure there will be more like this. Mm-hmm. So, all that is to say that with the Joker, what he's ultimately asking, and what I'm asking you, the listener, and what I've had to ask myself in ta- in, in you know talking about this film, where does our morality come from? Um, and so, you know where does you, the listener, where does your morality come from? And don't, and, and like, you know, don't say your parents, don't say the law because laws change and parents can often be wrong. Hmm. Don't like go back further. What's the root? What is the root? What is the core? Where does it come from? And then another question I have here is, does the answer to that question have an effect on our behavior? And if our morality comes from ourselves, and that could be through evolution, just through culture, you know, whatever it may be. If it just came from us, what incentive do we have, if any, for acting in a moral way? I think these are the core questions that the Joker asked himself. Yeah. And he came to the conclusion, our mo- I don't know where our morals come from. I think other people just made them up. And, who, and why are these other people any better than me? Why should I listen to them? You, I mean, you were talking, you, get, you made an analogy about uh, playing games when we were kids. Yeah, I, I was saying earlier when, uh, this is something I experienced as a kid, I don't know if other people did or not, but sometimes when you'd be playing a, a game, like a, I don't know, Capture the Flag or, or, or some sort of game like that, all those games have a, a set of rules. Without the set of rules, you can't play the game. The game doesn't work anymore. But... If someone decides they want to stop playing against those rules, who's to stop them? Right. Who's to tell them that, well, you, you have to play by the rules? If someone goes off, goes rogue and decides they're not going to, mm-hmm. the best we can say is, well, you're not supposed to. Yeah. And in a world that's just a game, you're not supposed to means nothing, ultimately. And And in a situation like that, Really, the only appeal that you can say is that, well, more of us want to play by these rules than your rules. And then it just becomes purely a function of the majority. Yeah. And there was a time when the majority said that slavery was okay. Yeah. The majority yeah. said that women can't vote. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there, that's ma- really not... I a, think we can see from historical record that the majority does not, does not mandate uh, 
well, <laughs> whenever the majority mandates morality, there's no reason to believe that that's any more right. Right. So, um, okay. So I'm sure that you can figure out that what we're basically talking about is an external morality, something that is outside of people. Now, this is a Christian podcast, so I'll give it a name. God <laughs> is the name I give it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some people who don't believe in God. And I guess this this episode is, is kind of for them. Mm-hmm. And one thing I'm going to say before we get any further into this, and before anybody takes this, whether they're Christian or otherwise, takes this the wrong way, I am not saying that if you are an atheist or an agnostic, I'm not saying that you won't have any morality, that you're just an immoral person. That's not true at all. I know plenty of atheists, and I know that they're very good people who can be very selfless. Mm -hmm. That's not the issue. And I know plenty of Christian people that have been some of the biggest jerks in the world. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, that's not the point that I'm making. What What I'm asking is to go further than that, to go deeper than that, to go, as Josh said, to the root of that. And figure and try to realize, try to think about where your morality comes from and what that if that creates any sort of obligation in you, whether you're Christian or otherwise, by the way, mm-hmm. you know. And so because that's this is kind of the audience that we're speaking to, um, I wanted I, I didn't feel like just quoting the Bible. There are Bible quotes in here, but I didn't want to just do that. I wanted to do something else. So. There's a book called An Atheist Defends Religion. It's written by Bruce Scheiman. And the title kind of says it all. He's an atheist, and he's defending religion. So I, uh, I looked up the chapter on morality, and I, uh, I have a pretty long quote here. I will just read it, and uh, we will move on from there. He says, As a secularist, I must admit that I do really believe that our... I do... I must admit that I do not really believe... Eh, I mistyped. <laughs> I, that I do not really believe that our morality comes from God. So the question remains, if not God, where does morality come from? Harvard psychologist Mark Hauser thinks he has the answer. Morality originates from an innate sense of right and wrong. In this understanding, morality evolved like any other intrinsic capacity for the good of the individual and society. Being an academic, Hauser seems unconcerned with real human behavior. Thus, Hauser neglects the most important question to arise from his book. If we all intrinsically know what's right and wrong, why don't we all behave that way? It makes sense that the evolution of our, of our nervous system would be biased in favor of pro-social behavior for the sake of our collective survival. But what Hauser completely neglects to explain is why if we are hardwired for moral behavior we can be so immoral our history is one long list of people doing the wrong thing thinking that it that it is the right thing to do thus being in possession of a moral instinct does not mean that people will always do the right thing in reality there is a huge gap between our innate moral tendencies and our actual behavior so all that is to say that to to bring it back to the film joker could ask where does our morality come from and he could let's say he went to you know nietzsche or let's say he went solely to to science and every time by the way every time i say science i don't want to say science with like a grimace on my face okay i don't want you to think that's how i think of science there are i think there are some christians for whom when they say science 
they might as well be saying your precious science <laughs> because that seems to be their attitude. And I am not at all opposed to science. All right. I'm talking to a microphone, podcasting over the Internet. <laughs> science, science is, is kind pretty of a necessity. Good. Oh, about, about movies, <laughs> by the way. And so um, so I'm, I'm all in favor of it. Um, but the question is, it, it remains that that doesn't really answer the question. It's like, OK, so we evolved. We evolved a sense of morality in order to better the species, you know. Mm. But then what happened? Then what about the person who merely who doesn't do that? And and even even innate in that in that statement about bettering the species are uh, judgments of right and wrong. Mm-hmm. What is better for the species? Species, we might say, well, it's better for the species to survive. But why is that? Right. Like the Joker would ask, and and Nietzsche would ask, and Nietzsche does ask, why is it better for a society to survive? Mm-hmm. Why is it better for us to? There, there are other philosophers who Nietzsche was speaking out against because i think one of his favorite things to do was to question other philosophers um he's a very angry person which is ultimately sad in in a lot of ways but um there were other philosophers who had ideas uh, for instance one one he talked about against a lot was uh arthur schopenhauer who had this idea that everybody has a will to exist and problems in in society and between people are caused when people's different wills to exist overlap each other mm-hmm. and when what one person feels like they want uh, and what is necessary to them in order for them to exist overlaps what another person thinks they need for and able to exist and um, Nietzsche ultimately asks like why is it better for them to exist and Sch- Schopenhauer would have said that they should give up of themselves to the point where they are able to both both exist and both get what they want but Nietzsche would ask why is it better for both people to have what they want why is it good for people to have what they want um, and I think those are the same questions that in a way the Joker is asking like why should you why is it better for you to keep con- to, to continue living it seems right. like uh, in in even speaking about uh, survival you're implying that survival is a good thing and then you're making a judgment call on survival itself whether it's good or bad and we see that he himself just in in his attitude about his own death exactly he doesn't care he doesn't living dying it doesn't particularly matter to him because nothing's good and nothing's bad because right essentially he he takes as nietzsche did he takes uh the idea that there are no absolutes to an extreme conclusion Mm mm-hmm and so, uh, and I know that um, C.S. Lewis, uh, and by the way, I know that C.S. Lewis, while being an intellectual and kind of an academic, I know that he was more in the literary world, not in the scientific world. So I know that a lot of people dismiss him uh, out of hand, and I'm, I'm okay with that because I don't like the idea of using him solely um, as like a scientific source. He was mm. philosophy and literature. And theology, um, but one thing that he talked about is is the idea of you see a man drowning. Culture, society, and morality says go save him, but that goes directly. That is in direct opposition to our survival instinct. Mm-hmm. So it seems it, it seems very counterintuitive to me that morality, if it came, if morality came out out of a purely evolution evolutionary thing, 
if it came out of that, that it would actually go against itself. Where it's like, this man, I don't know. He is not my, he's not my uh, offspring. Hmm. He is drowning. I really should just walk by, let him drown, and hey, maybe the species gets stronger. Hmm. And also, I'm alive. Problem solved. You know, more food for me in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, but morality and culture says it doesn't matter who that man is. Go save him. Yeah. And so it's 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 such an interesting thing to ask is why 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 should we go save him? Which is goes back to the question that you posed near the beginning that well that you mentioned that Dan posed uh, mm-hmm. on last episode is how do we explain the question of good? Mm-hmm. We know that we should go and save that person. Um and if it is that that's something that society has taught us for some reason society has taught us that that Mm. it still stands that even if that is a social construct where did that social construct come from right and and that is just as easy to question as it is to question why people do evil things right like so many people would look at the guy who's just standing and watching someone drown and say why aren't you helping him and that that person would be like the phil collins song exactly (laughs) the one from tarzan right so you'll be in my heart <sighs> as you're drowning. So, um, so okay. Now I'm sure that there are probably some philosophers or, or just some you know science-minded people who have answers for this. But ultimately, we are dealing with philosophical questions, and the 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 big question is always why, mm-hmm. and why should I? Not not why shouldn't I? But why should I? Why should I help that guy? Why should I care about my family? Why should I care about society in general? And and that sort of thing. So now, of course, the Bible speaks to this. Um, it says that we are sinful people. And it says, James 4.17 James 4, says, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. Uh, and first John one eight says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So all that, so all that is to say, um, we, we're not trying to like stick it to atheists. We're trying to approach the Joker on his own level. And I realize the Joker is a fictional character, but it's notable that in writing a character, that seem that has no morals nolan went to a very well-known and pretty well-respected philosopher who actually did exist and so um so yeah i I don't want again i don't this is not me trying to get out of getting negative emails i really don't want to like uh, offend anyone i'm not trying to make you angry we're just trying to meet the movie on the level at which the filmmaker seems to want us to meet it Mm -hmm. so Okay, I see you you grabbed your your book and you were furiously flipping through it. <laughs> well, no, I just I wanted to say just specifically to what you were saying then I I think one thing that we're trying to do is to get people because this is something that the film is is trying to do at one level is to get people to question where the morality comes from. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I was reading and preparing for this were were at least selections from I wasn't able to finish the whole thing, but selections from Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil. And um, this is a. I'll try not to read too much of this, just enough to make make sense. But um, uh, 
he specifically in in uh, part of this is questioning is suggesting that we uh, philosophers stress the idea of questioning everything and that go that means he, what he says is that means everything it doesn't mm-hmm. mean like we have a few things that that we just all understand and then uh the rest of it we can question mm-hmm. um i'm trying to see if reading this will actually be will be helpful or more confusing just go ahead uh, i'm just going to read it uh so he's speaking about judgments of um Uh, whether things are good or bad. And he says, judgments of this kind constitute the typical prejudice by which we can always recognize the metaphysicians, speaking of philosophers of every age. This kind of value judgment is at the back of all their logical proceedings. From out of this belief, quote-unquote, of theirs, they go about seeking their, quote-unquote, knowledge, which they end by ceremoniously dubbing the truth. The metaphysician's fundamental belief is the belief in the opposition of values. It has never occurred, even to the most cautious among them, to raise doubts here at the threshold where doubts would be most necessary, even though they have vowed to themselves, de omnibus dubitendum, which the footnotes tell me means question everything. Ah. So, that's a little wordy, but um, hopefully that uh, the point is even at the beginning of all of your logical proceedings, you need to start with question everything. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, again, you can take that as you will, whether you're not, whether or not you feel like that's true, but I think that's a question that the film raises. And I think that's a question that has been raised in culture at large and something that's interesting, if not very important to think about. And, uh, I think we're going to take a break right now, but in the spirit of like question everything, um, and in the spirit of, who the Joker is in this film. Uh, I don't, whether you're Christian or otherwise, by the way, question everything is not necessarily the worst instinct. In fact, it's actually a pretty good one. Um, And I think that we're very likely, much more likely to question other people's everything, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily our own. Yeah. Which leads me to a quote here from C.S. Lewis. And I'll leave you with this. And then we will take a break and we'll be, up, be back in a moment. Um, a great many of those who debunk traditional values have in the background values of their own, which they believe to be immune from the debunking process. And so both C.S. Lewis and Nietzsche seem to say, <laughs> question yourself, uh, whether you again, whether you're a Christian atheist or other or anything else, question why you believe what you believe. We will uh, take a break, and we will come back to talk about our companion film, Lord of the Flies. Okay, we're back. So, um, 
Hopefully everybody's uh, still with us. No one's too <laughs> upset. Um, yay. That's good. Um, so the companion film for The Dark Knight is Lord of the Flies. Uh, and I'm specifically talking about the 1963 version written and directed by Peter Brook, um, which is currently available in the Criterion Collection. And uh, I guess first we can... Most people know the story of Lord of the Flies, a, a, a group of school children, school boys specifically, uh, crash land on uh, a desert island, and they try to keep up, and no, there's no adults, it's just yeah, them. only the boys are the only ones who survive. Yeah, and they try to, you know, keep the rule of law, but sooner or later they just become uh, savages. Mm-hmm. That's the story in a nutshell. <laughs> um, I've not read the book, I hear it's wonderful, I've seen both versions of the film. Um, and there's, it was remade in 1990, uh, with an all American cast. And I don't remember that being particularly bad. That's the thing about like this story. There is, there is inherent power in it. It's hard to screw up. I think. Yeah, that's true. I I feel like it's been, I saw the, the 1991 when I was a kid really. So I, I don't remember too much about that one. Um, uh, but the, the, 19 i'm sorry you said 63 63 that's right uh the the 63 version if it is not and i've read the book as well if the 63 version doesn't stick to the book uh you know rigidly it at least gets it gets the same message across right i think it's hard to not get that message across unless you dramatically change that story yeah it's like well i I think i sympathize more with this jack character i think i i think let's uh, champion him uh, okay, so so I'm sure many people can figure out uh, what the link is thematically with this and the Dark Knight and what we've been talking about uh, in regards to the Joker and his philosophies, but for formality purposes, let's go ahead and, and delve into that a little bit. Let's do it. So the boys are stranded, and first they try to cling to the rules. They vote in a chief. When asked... Who are who are you? Uh, this one kid, Percival, I believe. Mm-hmm. He says his name, his address, what class he's in, his phone number. His like phone he number. says everything. <laughs> like that is how he identifies himself. Um, and so uh, there's also the the as far as you're talking about the rule of law stuff. They have a, a, a conch or a conch, conch shell yeah. that they find find on the beach, and it becomes a rule early on that if you want to speak in front of the group, you have the conch. The person with right. the conch does the speaking, and that that's a rule that they start out with. And and the conch itself becomes uh, it gains more significance because it is the, just the symbol of this tribe and what they're trying to be mm. and that sort of thing. And uh, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, but. Um, so they, they look around the island, they quickly realize, all right, there no there's no adults, it's just us. And so they say, we'll have to look after ourselves. But the thing that they they really want to try to cling to the, the rule of law, uh, because they are, you know, school children in an all-boys school, they all wear uniforms, like the pretty rigid uh, ideas of of the rules Mm -hmm. and they try to stick by that there's a i have a lot of quotes here and one is you got to have rules we're not savages (laughs) so there you go um so there's a the the chief his name is ralph and he's a you know good natured kid but he has some authority he's a you know kind of strong and his sort of right hand man is this uh, overweight kid with asthma and glasses or specs as he frequently (laughs) says uh, and his name, 
You never actually find out his real name, yeah. by the way. His nickname is Piggy. That was his name in school, and uh, and that's what everybody calls him on the island. And so Piggy and Ralph uh, are probably the closest friends there, and Ralph is in charge, and Piggy's pretty much whispering in his ear. Piggy is the one who insists that we, we need rules, and their first, of course, their first priority is to be rescued, as it should be. And then uh, this uh, a boys' choir comes walking down the beach, and they're singing, and they're very proper. And the head of the choir, his name is Jack. And as roles are sort of being assigned, Jack volunteers to do something. And he, he, vol- he volunteers to be a hunter. And his his choir, uh, which are basically co- sort of his minions of sorts, mm-hmm. they will they will be his fellow hunters. And it's an interesting thing for me because my apologize to anybody who sang in the choir when they were kids, <laughs> but I'd be willing to say that when you think of so- of people who sing these angelic songs, you don't immediately think these people are pretty good at killing, <laughs> uh, hunting and killing. Yeah. Um, and especially just the way they are dressed. They are dressed in a way that is not at all practical for doing what they are doing. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there is sort of a, an idea of reinvention. Jack is reinventing himself with this idea of what he wants to be. Yeah. And then just commits himself totally to that idea. And it's interesting how close it is to specifically the survival instinct, but it's the survival instinct in a much smaller sense. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's better for their survival if they're rescued, but if they don't look at things in the wider sense, they're only looking at their life on the island, mm-hmm. then hunting and food is becomes the highest priority in terms of survival. And uh, and they're immediately... And so as, as Jack focuses more on hunting and killing he comes to sort of uh, resent that Ralph was elected chief. But his bitterness, oddly enough, is not aimed at Ralph, because Ralph is well-liked. His bitterness is quickly aimed at Piggy. (laughs) Um, And it might just be, you know, because Piggy is just... He's everything that Jack is not, Mm -hmm. or at least Jack wants to be. He's everything that Jack doesn't want to be. In that he wants to be a strong hunter. Piggy can't. Re- he's got asthma. He can't really walk. He's overweight. He has glasses. He's just kind. Of- and his general attitude is he's always thinking about grownups. What would the grownups think? Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you know? What would grownups do? W W G U D G dash U D G dash U D. And so, and he's just always talking about rescue. And so, they actually use his uh, his specs, his glasses, to uh, light the fire that that they will try to uh, you know alert people to their uh, their whereabouts. And Jack says he and his guys will they'll make sure the fire keeps going. And of course, the first thing they do is let it go out um, because to him, the island is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Like I said, there's the reinvention, but it's also he kind of likes the idea that there's no there's no adults, and even though they're trying to keep the rules going, I think he he's the first one to say that there's no adults here. We're making our own rules. You've right. got this conch. You've got uh, we've voted you chief, but really, 
what makes you chief? All I have to do is say you're not for me, and then I can go and do what I want. He's ahead of the curve, you might say. One could say yes, he is ahead of the curve. Why do you got to? Re- it's not. It's not. That's not on my notes until the next page. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, maybe no one knows what we're talking about yet. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Oh, maybe. So. Um, maybe so they yeah. just perked up. They haven't been listening. Uh, Hello, uh, viewers. That's entirely possible. They're listeners. Listeners. Whatever. So. Um, I never latched on to the listeners thing from the Toby. Interview. Oh yeah, we need to start doing yeah, that. Yeah, sorry everybody. Um, <laughs> sorry, listeners. Yeah, why am I, I apologizing to you? I know you're deeply hurt by that. <laughs> like, come on, we were trying to embrace it. So, um, so yeah, J- so Jack is focusing, like you said. I- I'm glad you thought of it this way. He is focusing on survival in the short term. Now, who knows what that could be? But. Ralph and Piggy and a handful of others, although slowly but surely more people go over to Jack's side mm. because there is an appeal in just doing what you want to do at yeah. all times. And uh, so Ralph, Piggy, and a handful of others, they j- rescue is the most important thing. Getting back to civilization is the most important thing. And the more important it gets to them, the less important it becomes to Jack. Mm. Um and the most vocal critic of what Jack believes and what Jack is starting to embody is Piggy. And, of course, there, there, there's symbolism all around in, in this movie and in this story. Um, and the fact that Piggy is constantly talking about grown-ups. And there are no grown-ups on the island. So when he talks about grown-ups, he talks about this idea of grown-ups, which is kind of, which is though they've all had experience with grown-ups, it has become sort of abstract because who cares what grown-ups in in a way who cares what grown-ups would think? There's they're not here. And that seems to be Jack's uh attitude. And so in that way, Piggy is really sort of the symbol for religion. Uh and in many ways he is religion incarnate. He has faith in grown-ups. He's always asking, what would they do? They know things that we don't. They can handle things that we can't. And he tries to keep that in perspective. Uh, And in the spirit of being religion incarnate, he is often uh, obnoxious, and he is boring. Um, (laughs) And people, and even Ralph at times is just like, ugh, come on, piggy. Uh, like he just doesn't really like him. There's that great scene that and we were both laughing at when we watched it, where Piggy is is given the task of keeping watch over the little kids while some of the other kids go to. I think they're there to. They're looking for something. I don't remember yeah. exactly what. But uh, we cut to a shot in the movie where Piggy is sitting, telling these kids the most boring story you can imagine. He's telling them a story about, I think, how his town got its name, right. and the way is that like it got confused with another town, and it was difficult for the post office, so they changed it to something. And it's so boring. And doesn't that just, frankly, doesn't that just seem like the kind of scene out of out of uh, Seem like a scene out of uh, like Monty Python, where a cleric is just talking about stuff that doesn't matter, or people an, are bored, or any Reverend Lovejoy sermon. Any Reverend Lovejoy sermon, perfect. Yes, um, I was. Uh, I went to church today, and the term constancy was mentioned, mm. and then I remember a Reverend Lovejoy sermon and the tail end of it. And he goes, "We just need to remember constancy." sweet constancy and it it made me kind of chuckle so um anyway so piggy is the is the one who no matter what anybody 
believes now, he's always just there, nagging and saying, grown-ups, rescue, thinking in broader terms about when we get off this island and we need to hold fast to what grown-ups have taught us because we will return to them at some point. And as long as he's around, I think not everyone will be completely on board with Jack. Some of his friends will be, certainly. But not everyone, because there's still Ralph and Piggy. There's still the the chief and his, and his uh, you know, advisor, he, I guess you could say. He's the conscience of the island, in yeah. a sense. Conscience? <laughs> See? Look at that. I just came up with that. I'm pretty brilliant. So, um... So that's the thing is, rather than go after Ralph, Jack targets Piggy. Because while, while Ralph still believes everything that Piggy says, he's still, he's still strong, he has followers. And, and I think Jack realizes that, like, oh, once Piggy's taken care of, Ralph's no problem. Um, because Piggy, as crazy as he... Not crazy, but it's like as frustrating as he can be. He's kind of good for morale. Mm -hmm. So if you get rid of him, then Jack and his buddies just have free reign. And so finally, uh, Piggy is killed. Uh, He's one of two boys that are are killed. One of them, his name is Simon, and he sort of represents innocence. Mm -hmm. Like he's very angelic looking and mm-hmm. that sort of thing um and, and he's he, killed in the midst of a frenzy and nobody really knows that it's him he he in an early scene of the movie i think he he gives up i can't remember exactly what it is yeah i think he, he gives up his up. food that's yeah. one of the first scenes he gives his food to to piggy right. he's one of the only characters that we see sacrificing something for other people right with nothing to gain and so he winds up getting killed in the midst of a frenzy nobody means to kill him but he does mm-hmm. and one could say that in the midst of anarchy and chaos nobody necessarily means to target innocence but they often do so they wind up piggy is giving one last lecture because at this point it's just him and ralph everybody else has gone over to jack's side and so he's giving a lecture and his last words are which is better to have rules and agree or to hunt and kill at which point they drop a boulder on him and then ralph is alone and so he, but he continues to, to stand up to Jack. Uh, and then Jack finally just, cause that's the thing is Jack did not necessarily give approval to kill piggy. It was just one of his minions who just kind of thought, eh, I'm tired of listening to this. Let's, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And Jack is sort of taken, a, taken aback, but I think he recognizes, all right, this is going to be good for me. Yeah. Finally, it just, like the last, it's the last straw, and Jack just says, "Okay, we need to kill Ralph." Like he doesn't, he doesn't hem and haw. He doesn't say it'd be, re- you know, you're banished to that side of the island. He says, yeah. "We just need to kill him." There's no deliberation or anything like that. And right. w- why should there be? Uh, Ralph's the only one who disagrees with them at this point. Yeah. So and and since there are no rules, or rather, they're just sort of making the rules up as they go. The one guy who's not on board with that, uh, it'd be very easy and advantageous for us to just get rid of him. Mm-hmm. So they're uh, they're chasing after him, and they are going to kill him. There's no question. Hmm. Uh, and then on the beach, Ralph discovers uh, an adult man standing there uh, dressed in all white. Now, he's not in flowing robes or anything, <laughs> but he's dressed in like a, a Navy uniform. Uh, and there are other adults that have come, that have come ashore in a rowboat. And, uh, 
and he's just he just looks at them. I don't think he actually says anything. Uh, but Ralph looks up at him and kind of starts crying, and all the other boys that have been chasing him, they stop pretty much in their tracks and just kind of immediately they real the reality of the situation. Like, they thought that they were in charge. They thought that they've got everything worked out, um, and they can just do what they want. And then immediately, the adults show up, the author- the real authority shows up, and they immediately stop what they're doing because they realize, oh, we're just boys. That's that's the grown-up. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so the, the general theme is that without authority or without an authority figure of some sort, morality will wither and die, and there is only selfishness and survival at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, because if the adults had not shown up, Ralph would definitely have been killed, and then it's really just a matter of time before Jack and his friends, or just basically everyone that's left, before they just start turning on each other, and then it really just becomes the strongest survives. Yeah, and I think the themes of the book, too, go hand-in-hand with John Calvin's idea of total depravity, and that Mm -hmm. at heart, these people are, even though they're they're choir boys, you know, they're Mm -hmm. they're a symbol, or at least a, 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 what's the word? Choir boys don't literally symbol uh, goodness, but they're a, I don't know. What's 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 the name for that term? If you'd call somebody a choir boy, uh, kind of a metaphor. I don't know. It's I don't not know. a metaphor either. I can't think of the word right now. But basically, we we use the word choir boy to describe somebody who is completely good and innocent. And yeah, but a certain like a goody goody kind of type. Yeah, just yeah. uh, yeah, just and possibly annoying and will probably rat you out to the teacher that kind of thing so <laughs> but to um, see these characters that that are the the goody ones devolve into mm-hmm. literal killers yeah i mean even when they show up on the beach they're walking in formation singing a song like mm-hmm. that's what they do yeah um and so to see them yeah to devolve into total anarchy the most ordered of the boys um and yeah and so uh so we talked earlier about the conch and uh and that really is the symbol of of order like there's a scene where everyone has gone over to almost everyone has gone over to Jack's side and Ralph is you know piggy saying like Ralph just just blow the conch shell and everyone will come running and he says well what if they don't mm-hmm. like he his big concern he doesn't want to blow into the shell and make this noise that caused everyone to come running in the first place he doesn't want to do it because at that point if he blows it and no one comes, everyone will then know this doesn't actually have any power. Yeah. Um, and but he still it's it is still the symbol. And so he's talking. There's a scene where he's talking to Jack, and and he says, "I have the conch," which basically is him, him saying, "I'm in charge," or at the very least, "I'm allowed to talk right now, and you're not." Hmm. And then Jack responds with, "The conch doesn't count on this part of the island." Hmm. And Ralph comes back with, "The conch counts all over the island." And so he's trying to appeal to this, you know, it it really goes back to what you're talking about, like this childhood idea of of games where the only way it works is if everybody If we all play by the same rules. And so, but ultimately nobody, they're all on an equal playing field. Like Jack does have a point. It doesn't matter. Sure, it can matter to you if you want over on your side of the island, but it doesn't matter here. We do what we want here. You have no authority. Yeah. And so I will actually read a uh, a quick quote 
from that book, uh, An Atheist Defends Religion by uh, Bruce Scheiman. Humans cannot live in a world where ethics are relative. Thus, while it is true that without religion, people can certainly have a morality, as you and I were saying earlier, it is problematic that uh, it is problematic if that morality is not felt to be rooted in something objective and absolute. The paradox is that the moment we think that our moral precepts are man-made, we immediately feel they are fallible and ins- and insubstantial. No one wants to believe that their value system is culturally and historically arbitrary. Few people are comfortable believing their value system is a function of personal opinions, individual preferences, or calculating self-interest, even if it often is. And then uh, here's another quote, so I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Uh, That is what we need above all else, to feel that what is right is rooted in an absolute good that transcends human will, and there is no higher source of truth than a divine being from which all creation emerged. So that kind of speaks to, you know, Lord of the Flies in that, you know, they try to have they try to have rules without adults there, without an authority there. And not merely someone not merely one of them who puts himself in a position of authority, but someone who just has a natural position of authority. Grown ups know things, is mm-hmm. what Piggy says. And once you remove the grown-ups from the situation, they try for a while, but eventually they realize it's all arbitrary. Mm. What I want is different than what you want, and it's and you and I were talking during the break um, that ultimately, if you if it goes back, you know, if we were if you ask why why do we, why do I believe this, and ultimately it's just a function of just other people who very well could be wrong, by the way, just as often as you're wrong, um, then you're kind of, you find yourself sort of on shaky ground. And it's, and I, what I said basically is you find yourself trying to solve an equation with nothing but variables. You need a constant, you need an absolute. Yeah. And it's, it's easier for us to watch this movie, Lord of the Flies, or to read this or to read the book. And we can, we can look at it from outside the book and say, well, can you, can you believe that they would do that? Why can't they just wait for the grown-ups? Like, why won't they believe in that? Um, and that's easy for us to say, knowing what we know. But if we put ourselves really in their position, which I think is what the book wants us to do, mm-hmm. um, for the the audience, as viewers, we can see that rescue is a, is a more sure thing if they were to stick to that. Right. But their kids, they don't see that. And so on the island, within their context of the island it's it's might makes right it's everyone for himself mm-hmm. because if if you are only in that constant context of the island there's no reason why they should try to adhere to the rules of grown-ups there's no reason that they should try to uh to look for rescue if we can put ourselves in the same situation if we don't know that there is that there is a a grown-up or mm-hmm. that there is some kind of surety of rescue some kind of promise of rescue why don't we all become jacks essentially and it goes back to i'm sorry everybody this is a bit of a tangent um i enjoy the john lennon song imagine i enjoy it but i don't necessarily like it it's a good song it's very it it, there's power in it it's just a well uh, well constructed song but like as far as the philosophy behind it it's such an interesting thing you know Imagine there's no heaven or hell, and he says that as if it's a good thing, but then he says, like, imagine all the people living for today. Like, well, that's what Jack's doing. 
That's, that's what the Joker's what his, doing. That's what the Joker's doing. They're living for today. They're not think, you know, he's not Jack's not thinking about rescue. You know, he's not thinking about consequences. He's thinking about what he wants to do right now. Mm-hmm. And so the, and I used to love the, that song until I really read the lyrics and then realized like you're talking basically about anarchy and I and I realized that you think when I say you I mean John Lennon I realized that you think that maybe there's an inherent goodness within people and that if we just sort of if we all started thinking in these terms everything would actually turn out fine and while you and I are talking about a moral sense in people we're all very aware that very few of us if I'm going to say none of us uh, actually adhere to that on a regular basis yeah exactly even even though like we, and we're saying that as Christians, as people who are, we're saying we believe there is an absolute truth and there is an absolute code that should be adhered to mm-hmm. at all times and that there are consequences for that and that we deserve ultimate eternal punishment for that. Even knowing that, even believing that in our everyday yeah. lives, we break that code daily. Yo, if not hourly. <laughs> I kind of make a point of it so that grace will abound. It works out that way. <laughs> I think um, Paul said something about that, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. I don't remember the exact quote, but I remember that phrase being in there. Um, oh, that is such a nerdy Christian joke. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Um, if you want to know what we're talking about, hey, check out the Bible in stores now. <laughs> uh, so, um, okay, so I want to try and start wrapping up a little bit by saying that here's the thing, and last year I was on a show called Irreligiosophy. It was uh, run by a couple of uh, atheists who are very cordial to me and they were very nice on the show. Uh, And we didn't really talk about why I believe what I believe uh, from a spiritual standpoint. Uh, But I did specify that my reasons for believing it have more to do with philosophy than they have to do with any kind of scientific argument. Um, And that philosophy basically is what we're talking about here. We all want to do the right thing but how do we even know what the right thing is it is su- it could if it can be such a subjective thing and but we all it seems to be a common denominator that we all want to do the right thing even though we so seldom do it um and so and even though it require doing the right thing is so seldom beneficial to us and what we want or sometimes even what we need. You hear about people who literally sacrifice themselves for other people. What we need is to live, and that person gave up what they needed in favor of what someone else needed. Hmm. And that person could sometimes be an, a, a total stranger. Yeah. You know? And so, but at the same time, there are people who know what they should do, and they don't do it. So hmm. I don't mean to say that we all inherently will do the right thing, but that we, that the very concept of there being a right thing. Yeah. And that we should that we should do something even if it goes against what we want to do. Again, that good is enough of a problem it is as much of a problem to have to deal with as a philosophical idea as evil is. Right, and it, and to me, it just doesn't. From a philosophical standpoint, it doesn't make sense that we would have arrived there if we, unless there was a force at the moment. I will not call it God. There is a force outside of us that has put this thing on us. Um, I'll quote a couple of things here um, from C.S. Lewis again. Human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and they can't really get rid of it. Um, 
and so like and there's another one that actually I wasn't sure if I was going to use but I think I will in which he says heaven offers nothing that a mercenary soul can desire and that's the thing is in that sense heaven is about selflessness and a mercenary soul is all about what what it can get Hmm. and what's in it for for it and really if you were to talk to the Joker or Jack from Lord of the Flies or Nietzsche we are mercenary souls and selflessness is not something that we really should value but we do for some reason Hmm. even if we don't always you know execute that perfectly and their argument would be that that is a thing of the past and that is a thing for us to throw off Mm -hmm. and 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 to pursue a a new sense of morality all three of these both uh, jack jack without implicitly saying it realizes that he's ahead of everyone and that he's able to get something if he if he jumps ahead and and becomes Mm -hmm. and and uh fights for might makes right ahead of other things joker specifically says that he's ahead of the curve by uh throwing off these ideas of good and evil Mm -hmm. that are holding everyone holding everyone back in a sense the only sensible way to live is without rules is a line that he says exactly and nietzsche said the same thing to his contemporaries and to us now he he would say it's time for us to progress beyond good and evil because if there are no absolutes, then good and evil are pure constructs. Which leads me to wonder what exactly, what view of the world Nietzsche thought should be. Like, Mm -hmm. if he says this is what we should do because it's silly for us to do otherwise, what exactly did he want? Like, did he just want a Lord of the Flies type world? Like, what did he think would happen if everyone just said, you know, Nietzsche's right, let's do what he's saying? You know, I, I think it's interesting because a lot of philosophers are saying this is what you should do in, in a, I guess they're all kind of doing that to a point. But Nietzsche more talked about the idea behind that, like mm-hmm. almost like this is what you should not do. Mm-hmm. And I haven't read all of his writings, obviously, but a, a lot of it doesn't seem to offer a a uh, a solution of how we should live in that knowledge he he's presenting a knowledge that he's saying this is the way the world is deal with it mm-hmm. and i think even he wasn't sure exactly how to deal with for several reasons one because his writings tend to seem to differ a little bit and even maybe contradict each other at times and ultimately some people believe that it drove him insane he did mm-hmm. go insane ultimately um and you know, it's not to say that that is absolutely why, right? But I think it's entirely possible that having to deal with the tit- the Titanic issues that he had raised for everyone else to mm-hmm. deal with, he himself couldn't handle that. I mean, it's and yeah, and of course, uh, and we were talking about this in the break as well, whether or not we would we would bring that up because we don't want to imply that if you that you would go totally insane and have strokes and die in a mental institution <laughs> as Nietzsche did yeah. if you adopt his his attitude or if you're just or if you just uh, don't believe in god or something like right. that's not what we're implying at all no no but just uh, but at the same time like if you if you go back far enough and if you go deep enough i mean it can be pretty philosophically mentally and emotionally not merely exhausting, but I mean the the ramifications of constantly asking why mm-hmm. and not just accepting something, you know. And that's 
it, it can it can actually have I think a huge effect on you. Um, I don't have this quote written down, but uh, and I'm sorry for for quoting C.S. Lewis so much. I, I feel like it's something I do too often. But uh, he, the problem with him being so literary is that he tended to write things very well uh, or express his ideas very well. And one yeah. thing that he said is to see through everything is not to see. You know, and so like I think. Nietzsche just kept seeing through things and eventually found himself almost philosophically or emotionally blind. Mm. Um, and in the, and by, by which I mean, he, he had no bearings. Mm. He had nothing that he could cling to, uh, for stability. Um, again, I'm not saying that that's what caused him to, to have those strokes and, and to have a nervous breakdown. That's not what I'm saying, exactly. but that's, we do need to to keep in mind like if we go down this road far enough what does it mean for us and just that they're very big issues to deal with Mm -hmm. and we don't even mean to say either that um uh, that he we don't mean to suggest that he was a crazy person in suggesting these things and that you know he he was probably crazy the whole time but uh, i i think he's got a lot of good points and i think that atheists and christians should read nietzsche because he raises a lot of important questions that i think all of us should think about at least and i think that's why the joker resonates with us so much is because you listen to what he says and you're like it's um I can't really argue with that. In that in that interrogation scene, mm-hmm. I remember feeling frustrated in the movie because you want Batman to stop him. You want right. him to, to like to reason against him in some sort of way because you're, you're, it's like Joker's making too much sense, mm-hmm. and I don't. He's in my head, <laughs> you know. It's, but it, seriously, he, he's he's making a point to which. I don't have an answer to right away. And you want Batman as the, uh, as the character who's on our side in the movie to, to combat what Joker has says and to prove him wrong. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't do that in that scene. And it's frustrating. Yeah. He beats him up. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. Um, but yeah. And so I do want to, I do want to talk about, I want to bring this back around to, to Christianity. And thankfully dark Knight gives me plenty of, uh, ammunition with which to do that. Um, Ammunition might not be the right word. <laughs> I was going to say that. Because <laughs> uh, that implies that we're just attacking people. Um, but the... So what we're basically saying is that there is a force that uh, has instilled in us a sense of morality, and thus it cares very deeply about what we do. And we very seldom do it. Mm. So what does that mean? In many ways, quite frightening. Mm. The idea of... Well, what happens if you, you know, it reminds me of, uh, okay, this is abstract, so bear with me. It reminds me of the terrible film Sphere based on a pretty good book by Michael Crichton, in which uh, there seems to be this weird thing that exists. You don't know what it is, uh, and its name is Jerry, and it communicates to them through, like, the computer, and Jerry says, I am happy. And Jerry is, is it, the implication is Jerry is coming from inside this sphere that is this silver sphere that has been found under the water and is probably from another planet and is probably projecting a consciousness onto this computer screen. It's, a, it's an interesting book. Anyway, not the best movie. But, uh, but in both, I think Jerry says, I am happy. And everyone's like, oh, that's great. And and Dustin Hoffman's character, who's a psychologist, he says, I, I don't think I want Jerry to be happy. 
They're like, why? He goes, because what happens when he gets mad? And it's like a really nice, it's a really neat moment where you're like, oh yeah, uh oh. And in that, and kind of in that same way, there's a force that, you know, we're talking about a force that has instilled something in us. That's great. It helps us govern our society. We never do it. Mm. I mean, we do it, but we never do it consistently. Mm. So what does that mean for us? Mm. I've got another quote, another Lewis quote. I'm sorry. Um, There is nothing indulgent about the moral law. It is as hard as nails. If God is like the moral law, then he is not soft. Mm. And that's the thing is, like I said earlier, we, none of us do this right. I've got a quote from Isaiah 53 verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord was laid on him, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We'll get to that in a moment. But, uh, so we're talking about actually from a spiritual and philosophical standpoint, a very depressing and I would say alarming fact Hmm. um, about what we're supposed to do, but what we don't do. And I will bring us back to Gotham City. Uh, And I will just read what I wrote here. The residents of Gotham City have given up on the idea that there can be any salvation for them. As I mentioned earlier, there's a great deal of corruption, and they just know that the place they live is pretty bad. Then Batman appears, and he inspires people. Now, some of them go too far and try to do his job for him, as we see at the beginning of The Dark Knight. Others simply see the selfless qualities in him, and they try to emulate those qualities. At the end of the film, even the prisoners on the ferry do this. And we are, we, le- we are led to believe that these types of people are in it only for themselves. But even there are inspired by a selfless quality in Batman that has started, and in, in Harvey Dent, that has permeated the city. But that's the thing, is that the the city is also inspired by Dent and he tries to be selfless and he succeeds for a while, but eventually he gives into his desire for vengeance. Mm -hmm. And as that happens, because he is the most visible symbol of hope, Gordon says people will lose hope. He says, if people know what, what Harvey Dent did, they'll, they'll lose all hope. And that's when Batman decides that he will, he will take the consequences for dense crimes. He specifically says, I did those things. He says that so that the city won't lose their hope. Um, in Batman begins, the emphasis is on justice. Now justice versus revenge. Revenge is about you, uh, something you're doing for yourself. Whereas justice is about something bigger than that. And it basically says that, Someone will pay for their crimes, but not for any personal reasons, but for something bigger than that. And that's what Batman is all about. But in this moment, he's the truly just thing is for everyone to know what Harvey did, because that's true. But Batman actually says that there's something bigger than that. He said, uh, there's a quote, there's a line in here. Sometimes people deserve to have their faith rewarded. They had faith in him. They had faith in Dent. And for him to be, to just embrace justice completely means their faith will have been dashed. And so he takes it on himself, even though he didn't do it. And what's 
specifically interesting is that in doing that, their faith in him is proven to be correct. And so in that, of course, obviously, I'm talking about the idea of justice and love Mm. and that what do we do when we recognize that we have a sense of what we're supposed to be doing, but we don't do it. But then why do we have that sense at all? And it's probably for the same reason that our parents give us rules and it's to protect us because they love us. So that means there's that the same force that put these rules in us cares about us. So you get this, this idea of justice and love. And in many ways it seems as though they are opposed Mm-hmm. And actually, they kind of are. Yeah. Um, did you want to... I was just going to say that they are in that justice requires... Uh, justice requires an ultimate punishment for every every wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. Um, but love is able to... Love desires to overcome the punishments even that people deserve. Right. And as Christians, we believe that God is the force that does those... In, in which both of those things are able to exist, both a perfect uh, sense of justice in that he cannot stomach our sin. He cannot stomach our rebellion, um, which we choose to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also is perfectly loving and, and in that needs to create a way out for us. And that's the thing. And that's, that's that is the core of Christianity, is that may, more so than I would say any other religion, it understands human nature, and that we are always going to screw up. Mm. In in some other religions, it's about doing more good than harm. But the, the thing that gets me is, what if you kill someone? How much good can you do mm. that will offset that? Yeah. You know, it, it, the emphasis is entirely on you, but you're a flawed thing. Mm. You're you're going to make the wrong decision frequently, daily, as Josh said. So I guess we're screwed. But this but this force, which I will now call God, loves us. And as we see from as we see with Batman, the only way to to accomplish both at once is to sacrifice himself because we can't sacrifice ourselves because if we if we were to do that it wouldn't really be a sacrifice because we would merely be getting what is coming what we to deserve us. exactly and so there's a there's a lot uh, at the end of the of the film at uh, harvey dent's funeral because of course nobody knows what he's done and so his funeral is uh he's being hailed as a hero and commissioner gordon he is making reference to Denton. He says, he's not the hero we deserved, but the one we needed. Now, Gordon knows full well what Harvey has done. And he knows what Batman has done. So, the, so that line, while, every, while everyone thinks he's talking about Harvey Dent, he's really talking about Batman there. Batman is the hero that Gotham needs, but they don't deserve him. They don't, you know, that city has done so much wrong that it would be easy to do what Ra's al Ghul was going to do in the first film and just be like, 
let them kill each other. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to help it along. The world would be better without them. Mm-hmm. But Batman says, no, that's not what's going to happen. I will sacrifice myself in in as much as I can to to redeem this city. And in that sense, yes, that's Jesus. Um, so I do have some some quotes here from the Bible. Uh, greater greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. That's John fifteen thirteen. So of course we're talking about the idea of self sacrifice being the pinnacle of love. Second mm-hmm. Corinthians five twenty one. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Galatians two twenty. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, And so, we can sort of attach ourselves to Christ. We We have this idea of what we should do, but what we're not doing. And there is a penalty that needs to be paid. It's already been paid. The only way that we pay it is if we insist we, we pay it, mm. which is to reject Christ. Yeah. Um, and so that is that that's the good news. When people make reference to the good news of Christianity, that's the good news. Yeah. It's that, well, yeah, I'm maybe I may be restating what you said, but uh, the good news is that we have these intrinsic sen- the ideas of, of right and wrong, and we are held responsible to those by the person who created those. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that person has intermedi- intermediated himself because he knows that we're not going to do. He knows we're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. So the good news is that we it's okay if we don't. It's okay that we can't. Um, as long as we're willing to accept that that's who we are and that's what he's done. And I'll bring us back to the dark Knight. after the Joker is responsible for many, many deaths of various people, criminals and, and civilians in Gotham. And at the end, Batman, he basically winds up being thrown off a building but Batman saves him, which, by the way, is completely unjust. This guy should pay for his crimes. And by the way, it's not like Batman dropped him off the building. Mm-hmm. He did it as a way of getting the Joker out, off from on top of him. And then that's just kind of the way it worked out. So he's even kind of blameless in letting him in letting that happen. But he doesn't. He saves the Joker and the Joker, as we said earlier, is disappointed. But one thing that he says is, you truly are incorruptible, aren't you? And so, and the same can be said of Jesus. And that's exactly why we can put our faith in him and why him paying the, the punishment for our sins, that's why it works, because he's done nothing to deserve it. Mm-hmm. And so I will crib a line from Commissioner Gordon, and this is kind of, this is probably how we'll end this. Christ is the savior we need, but not the one we deserve. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, I'm sure that this episode, this episode will spawn some, 
emails. Um, as I said earlier, let's let's try to keep everything civil, even if you disagree. Um, you can email me, Tyler at more than one lesson dot com. You can email Josh, Josh at more than one lesson dot com. You can f- uh, go to the website. It's not updated very frequently, but there are a couple of new sermons on there that you can listen to. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash more lessons. Josh, you can follow on Twitter, twitter.com slash the Josh Long, by which I mean T H E, not T H E. So the Josh Long. Uh, you can uh, find us on iTunes. Uh, feel, if you. If you wanted to, you could uh, write us a nice review. That'd be that'd be delightful. We'd love it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, thanks everybody for listening, and I'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.